And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Carl Hulse is the chief Washington correspondent for The New York Times, longtime congressional correspondent, uh, as knowledgeable about uh, the process on Capitol Hill and the personalities on Capitol Hill uh, as anyone in American journalism, and uh, an Illinoisan by birth, which makes him a special person uh, to me. But we had a great conversation about the election and what we can expect after the election from Washington. Carl uh, Hulse, I have to tell you, I had an eye exam this morning. My eyes were dilated, so I'm going without notes. <laughs> but I don't need notes to say why I, uh, I admire you so much. One is you're an Illinois guy. True. And the other is you're a, an honest-to-God newspaper man. Yeah, uh, still not, being not, stained wretch. Exactly. So, But let, talk about growing up in Illinois. You're sitting here with your Cubs hat on, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, tell me about uh, about growing up in Ottawa, Illinois. All right. So I grew up in Ottawa, which is about 90 miles. You guys would call it southwest of here. We'd call it west. It's not really downstate to us. So small town, about 15,000. Uh, my family's been there since the 1800s. And, uh, you know, real blue-collar place where you rode your bike everywhere, a lot of farmland, a uh, great place to grow up. Pretty, you, pretty you rough spot. Do? What's that? What'd your folks do? My dad was a plumbing contractor after World War II. My mom worked for maybe a week in the courthouse, and that was it. Six kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's work. Yeah. No, that was a lot of work. Especially with you as one yeah, of them. Are yeah, they no, all like I was you? actually quite a troublemaker. Uh, say. No. I know that would be That's a shock a, yes, to a yeah, lot exactly. of people. And uh, I was the first one in my family not to go to the Catholic high school because I had had enough of the... Uh, discipline at the Catholic grade school, mm-hmm. and then went to Illinois State. It could be that the nuns didn't want you. Yes, they actually didn't want me. Yes. They weren't happy. They unhappy <laughs> to see me go. So the I uh, went to Illinois State University mm-hmm. and uh, ended up working. In normal, at, right? Normal, yeah, normal. the Vedette, which was the school paper there. I am a charter member of the Vedette Hall of Fame, by the way, David. Is that I right? I just want you to know that. You're not wearing your pin. <laughs> I should. Yeah. So the... Uh, what, what got you... Uh, interested in in journalism was that something that you knew you wanted to do from the beginning we were huge readers in my family my mother was a voracious reader i still read try and read a couple books a week honestly uh and you know was always sort of a writer in fact at saint columba high school i wrote a story about them tearing down a building and got a front page story in the saint columba crest i think i was in third grade and never wow. looked, never looked back. Yeah, that's, Although, that's big stuff. Yeah, and at the Vedette at ISU, it was a big operation. It was five days a week, uh, probably twenty thousand copies a day. Because Normal didn't have its own paper, Bloomington Panagraph, you know, the Stevenson yes. family paper. Uh, so you know, I learned a lot there. I immediately did you study journalism? Speech communications is what they they didn't really have journalism there. Right. I ask you that because I'm always you know I never took a journalism course in my life. It showed actually. Yeah, I've it's been pointed out before, <laughs> but I honestly don't think it's you know not to in any way denigrate journalism schools. I don't think it's something that you can learn in a classroom. I think it's something yeah. you have to learn by doing. Yeah, I think it's the practical experience. I had a job at the LaSalle, Peru News Tribune 
the minute I graduated. I worked there. I worked at the Kankakee Daily Journal. So when you were in Kankakee, let me stop you there. Uh, was uh, was George Ryan uh, there? The, f- yeah, the George future Ryan. governor and George Ryan, sadly convicted in, governor. In fact, I wrote uh, one of the first sort of negative stories about George Ryan there. I'd caught him in some kind of legislative flim-flam. And he was a state rep at the time. I think he was, but he yeah. was moving up in the leadership. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took it to my boss, who was cool with it. They just hadn't had stories like that before. You know, I, was a pretty I bet he didn't sit well with George. No, they were like, who is this guy? You uh-huh. know? Uh, but, you know, the thing about the Ryans, Tom Ryan, who was the mayor of Kankakee, he was really the power. You know, they had, it was funny in Illinois, you know, it's so democratic in a lot of places people are used to. Kankakee County was this Republican stronghold and had this real Ryan machine, right? And they were very uh, effective. And when I left after a few years, I covered the city council. I caused all sorts of trouble there, including getting the federal funds cut off to the city. Uh, They lost a federal lawsuit. And, but I, I can see where that would irritate them. Yeah, no, but they were kind of like, okay, you know, there was, <laughs> and so, but when I announced I was leaving at the city council meeting one night, they passed a resolution uh, of approval that I was leaving. <laughs> <laughs> do you still have that? Yeah, I do, actually. I have it at home. It's one of my proud momentum. Were you surprised years later when uh, when George Ryan got, got in trouble no. as, as governor no, of Illinois? because there was a lot of stuff that was going on there. I mean, they hadn't been watched that closely. I mean, that was just sort of their way of doing politics, not unlike Chicago politics in a way, just reversed of the parties. And did you see yourself from the beginning, at, did you see your role as kind of ferreting out that stuff. I always have sort of seen myself as a government and politics reporter, and some of that comes along. But, you know, just trying to convey to people what's going on. People say, oh, you cover Congress, you know. And I said, it's really just a big city council. You know, uh, I've had this, actually had this, not to drop names, but had this chat with the, the president because we'd go, we'd travel the world and we'd meet with, uh, he he would meet with world leaders and so on, or he'd deal with people. And you there are certain immutable principles of yeah. politics that translate everywhere. Everybody's a, lot a back of, scratcher. And 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 Tip O'Neill's adage about all politics being local yes. is true wherever you go. Yeah. I mean, some of the people are just a little smarter and, and the uh, rooms are a little more ornate, right? But it, it's the same thing. You know, and I never had any aspirations to work at the New York Times, obviously. For you some, went down to Florida first. Yeah, right? I went to Florida and then just sort of ended up in Washington and worked my way up. Did but, you want to be in Washington? No, never. Never even occurred to me. Uh, the Tribune would have been a huge accomplishment for me to work at the Tribune. And, uh, I would have loved to have you as a colleague. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, uh, Bill Keller, so guys from small town Midwest state schools are not prevalent at the New York Times, yes, right? Yes, I Obviously. know. Bill Keller, the old executive editor, used to call me an affirmative action hire. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just, in fact, one of my uh, siblings would call when I'd get a front page story in the Tribune from the news service, right? New York Times news service. And say, hey, you're in the Tribune today. I say, well, you know, I work at the New York Times. And she goes, yeah, but you're on the front page of the Tribune. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that's, it is that's a, uh, a funny thing. That's the Midwest for yeah. you. So did, uh, when you, just, just to, when you were down in Florida, did you cover politics yeah. down there? Broward County politics, South Florida politics, and uh, state legislature. You know, uh-huh. I, I think state legislatures are the best place to learn how to cover politics. More America. than city councils. Huh? Yeah, I mean, because there's, more at stake, mm-hmm. and you get the rhythm of the legislature. You know, most city councils are, you know, they're not 
constantly meeting, right? right? Legislatures are. So, um, what did you? What 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 were your observations of Florida politics when you were down there? You know, Florida's a funny state because they have some shady politics, but they also have the great open records laws. So you can actually find out quite a bit what's going on. I was actually there for the 2000 election. I was there that that night. That was my assignment. And, you know, never seen anything like that and was was there for the next week. And And what a Broward County, you were right at the in the seat of the right. I actually have at home a voting machine from Broward County so I can hang my chads whenever I want. We have one of those actually in the headquarters of the Institute of Politics here. It's funny. It does. It is a kind of a reminder that votes voting actually matters. Yeah. No. And, you know, I was I actually covered the Senate race, a great Senate race in Florida in 1988. Connie Mack versus uh, Buddy McKay. I don't know if you remember that. Sure. Hey, Buddy, you're a liberal. Yes. A famous line from that. And that was sort of the precursor of the 2000 meltdown because they had a big uh, voting problem in Hillsborough and Pinellas counties that I think was sort of foreshadowed all this. And so I wasn't exactly shocked when it really went bad in 2000. You came up to uh, Washington. Right. Was working for a, a newspaper chain for a while called Thompson Newspapers. And uh, they were sort of still just entering the uh, digital age. We actually mailed some stories back to papers at that time. And it said on the envelope, news, please rush. <laughs> and I had this image of the postman, you know, running. Down Does that work? I I'm going to I'm, I'm yeah. mark all I, my letters that yeah, way. Yeah, I, I don't think it did. So I was there for a while. And then the Times needed someone, because the Times used to own a lot of papers around the country, mainly in the South. And they needed somebody who knew something about Florida. I ended up there and... Uh, I've just been there um, 30 years now. And uh, talk about Washington as you found it when you arrived and Washington as you see it today. Totally different place. Totally different. You know, to me, back then, you know, there was a lot of partisanship, obviously. And, you know, I don't want to paint some picture of this uh, halcyon days where everybody got along. No, there was a lot of nasty partisanship. I think the thing that was different then than it is now is almost everyone who came up there was hoping to do something right there was they wanted to get something for their state or their town or there was some motivation to to deliver and i think now you have guys that you that are there and you know there's some on both sides they just don't want anything to happen and mainly the republicans obviously i mean that's just their view because they don't believe that the government. federal government should right. be uh, right Active. Right. And uh, so, you know, and we could talk about the elimination of the earmarks and things I like do that. want to talk about that because, I, you know, I when I came here to Chicago as a young student and then as a young reporter, I was very much on the side of uh, the reform efforts, reform party selection process, right. reform government. And, and, and there's no doubt that there was need for uh, some reform. The question is, have we reformed our way into a Into box? a big mess? Yes. I, you know, John Boehner, if he's listening to this somewhere, will be very unhappy that I say that John Boehner is the one who really wanted to get rid of earmarks. I think you've taken away some of the incentives for doing business, right? You have to give guys a reason to vote for legislation. Or gals, just to keep right. you out of trouble. Yes, exactly. Although when I say guys, I mean guys and gals, just, yes. just to be clear. Okay. But the, uh, so if you eliminate that, they're, why are they going to vote for these appropriations bills, which are all stalled? Now, earmarks got very corrupt. It was a bad situation. There was out-and-out fraud and crime going on. 
you know, and Jack Abramoff, and we all know all that story. The lobbyists but who it seems, went to prison. Right. But there seems to be uh, some motivation now to try and find a way to bring bring it back. Because the appropriations process, you know, which is really the bedrock of the government, uh, of the Congress, what they're supposed to do, is totally broken. And so nothing, you know, every that leads to everything being broken. So I don't know how you do it, but... I think there's a case to be made for finding ways to do it. Um, it also puts too much, as you were in the executive branch yourself, it also puts too much power. You're handing over all the power of the purse to the executive branch in a way. They're making all the decisions on how the money is spent, right? But, so, you know, it's not in the interest, in my view, it's not in the interest of the executive branch to have a dysfunctional legislative right. branch. If you're president, you want leaders who can deliver and if the leaders can't deliver, who do you deal with? Right. Who do you negotiate right. with? Which was, uh, in some ways, the problems with the grand bargain at Boehner. And I know at the White House that the former Speaker Boehner, I know at the White House there was some concern that he couldn't deliver the votes even if you made a deal. So, Well, you know, talk about the leaders themselves that you've known. And among them, uh, who impressed you as the most uh, effective uh, of them and why? I mean, they're all, they've all been kind of effective in their own way. George Mitchell, who was there actually right at the very beginning when I was covered, he was... Majority he was, leader in the yeah, Senate. and he was very effective, but he, was, he wouldn't deal with the press very much. Uh, so that I, rendered him ineffective. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But uh, He got off one of the great lines of all time that I quote all the time when Democrats call me uh, and you know, doing what David Pluff calls bedwetting. Mm-hmm. I, I'm always reminded that George Ryan was the one who said the only people who believe Republican talking points are Democratic senators. Yeah, thought one of the great lines of all time. <laughs> but um, so I thought uh, Tom Daschle was good, but he was sort of at the beginning. Succeeded Mitchell. Yeah, he was sort of at the beginning uh, of the change. You know, I've spent the uh, change. You know, of of the climate in, in mm-hmm. Washington and. You know, it's when the filibustering of judges began, that sort of thing. But the uh, let's just talk a little bit about, you know, some of the current people. In the, you know what? Nancy Pelosi, I'm also going to give uh, props to. I mean, she is extremely iron-fisted as a leader and can you really know, round up her votes. probably no one less understood in public than in the, in the broader public than Nancy Pelosi, who is viewed by some as sort of this effete uh, California yeah, yeah. liberal. She's the daughter yeah, of she's the tough mayor. Italian Paul. <laughs> she was on this. Uh, she was on this podcast, and I asked her what she learned from her father, who was the mayor of Baltimore, and her brother was as well. And she didn't skip a beat. She said, "I learned how to count." Right. Yeah. No. She is really good at holding her people together. You know, which the Republicans suffer for. But and say what you want about Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mitch McConnell is a very, very effective leader, and, you know, he's turned the place upside down a little bit over the past few years. I'm going to miss Harry Reid, who's leaving this year. I think, uh, you know, he's done some uh, amazing things, and I think the nuclear option that he, he pulled on the on the judges, you know, that took— that Eliminating took, the filibuster. Right. Uh, you know, that took some nerve. There's a lot of people who don't think that was a very good idea. Well, but. I want to ask you about that because there could be another turn of the yeah, uh, exactly. page here. On McConnell, you did a story that I've quoted yeah. many, many times. You and Adam Nagurney did right. this really excellent story in January of 2010 where you interviewed McConnell. And he essentially said, 
you know, that it was the strategy of the Republicans not to be cooperative with the president because they didn't want to, they knew if they joined hands with him, they would probably reduce their chances of of winning back seats. Um, and it that, still didn't work out that great for him because it took him six years, right, to get those seats back. McConnell, I, I would take you back a little bit to the the day of the new Congress, January 3rd or whatever it was in 2009, right? Mm-hmm. The, right after Obama was elected. The Republicans were in shock. I've talked to Republicans that day. They thought they were dead <laughs> forever. Obama's this hugely popular figure, transformational, had some good advisors somewhere, I guess, along the way that got him there. But yes, the, it was all the advisors. Yeah, but the they really thought that they were dead. And so they were casting about, how do we do this? And so McConnell organized his people and said, the only way we're going to be able to stop this is to really hold together and, uh, you know, just have united opposition. And he was able to pull that off. He convinced those people against their own judgment, some of them at the time, to hang together against uh, the president. Now, Mitch McConnell would say, well, we were just hanging together against him on the bad things. If they would have worked with us on the stimulus and the health care law, of course we would have went along. But, you know, you know the rest of that story. Right. I mean, the reality, I mean, I always, the truth is I have mixed feelings about it because the country was in the midst of this epic economic crisis. And so you'd like to think that partisanship wouldn't factor into these considerations. But there are a lot of, I I would say the majority of folks you come into contact with in Washington understand that the first imperative for a member there is to make sure that they come back. Right. And McConnell's goal as a leader was to try and get the majority back. Right. And he he was in a 59-41 hole at the time. So, you know, I think there was a and moral. Soon to be sixty. There were yeah. exactly there was a moral imperative on the one hand. I think to cooperate. On the other hand, from a strategic, just a purely clinical strategic standpoint, if they had cooperated, how do they run against the president's major policies in the in the midterm right. election when you knew that there were, he was going to be vulnerable? But yeah, you're thinking like a, a political strategist, right? And I think that was their thinking. Mitch McConnell has a way of an ability to a lot of times to be against things though that he knows have to happen even though he voted for the bank bailout uh you know he allowed some of these things that he thought would be potentially bad for republicans to occur but you raise an interesting point i ran into a republican strategist the other day uh, someone you would know i'm not going to name him and he was we were talking about this current senate fight and i said well you know no matter what happens you're going to you have a good number. The Republicans are going to have a strong number in the Senate, and they'll be able to do things. And the guy, this Republican, says to me, yeah, but to what end? No one wants to do anything anymore. And we got to talking about that, and I said, well, you know, Congress isn't supposed to just be a full employment program for politicians who are smart enough to keep getting reelected, right? At some point, you have to do some things. And this was a Republican saying, somebody's got to step up to the plate here eventually. We're a uh, we'll be we're going to take a short break now, and we'll be right back with Carl Hulse. You know, you raise an interesting uh, dilemma for the Republicans. They are not at this moment a coherent party. They're divided right down the middle between uh, between uh, center right, corporate oriented 
Republicans, the sort of the traditional, more traditional, the traditional Republicans. Now they're the, quote, establishment. Right. And then they have this rabid populist base uh, that is anti-trade, anti-immigration reform. Anti-them. Anti-them, yeah. yeah. And anti-government in right, many ways. Right, right. Um, and so it seems to me that the only way they cohere is to to be against something that they can all be against. So they could all be against yeah. Obama. And uh, it's easy to easiest vote in Congress is no. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and I think from uh, trying to. Yeah, exactly. And trying to develop a, a, an agenda that everyone can embrace is much harder. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what you think happens now. Uh, after November eighth, this we, we we have we'll have an election coming up in a. By the time this is heard in a in a, uh, a couple of days, a day, I'm looking at my producers here, <laughs> but but shortly. Um, so let's try and project past that. Yeah, sure. Uh, and uh, and assume that Hillary Clinton wins the election, and it, the election's tightening. Anything can happen, but that's a fairly. Uh, if you read the analytics guys at the New York Times, it's a pretty good bet. And I know you would bet on the analytics guys at the New York Times. So uh, what is she going to confront after November 8th? Yeah, I mean, and I think also that the right now those same analysts would say the Democrats have an advantage in the Senate, right? So let's think about that. So then you have Chuck Schumer as the new majority leader. Replacing Harry Reid. Right. So... How is he different than Harry Reid? He is is more the classic politician. You know, he... Chuck Schumer, and I've talked to him about this recently. I wrote a piece on... uh, that ran this week, I think, on what you were just talking to me about. The, you know... Chuck Schumer sees himself as a guy who's going to get in the room and make a deal with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and that he's going to be able to, to work these things out. He's, he knows how to cut deals and has cut some deals, right? But also a guy who uh, one of the reasons he has support among members is he's very focused on what they need to do yes, to ex- get reelected ex- and to hold the majority. Extremely focused. In fact, just to digress a little bit on that question, so Chuck Schumer is going to have to start protecting centrist Democrats in the next round, you know, Democrats from Heidi Heidkamp, from North North Dakota, Dakota. Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Joe Donnelly next door in Indiana, even Claire McCaskill. So, you know, that's going to figure into all this calculation. So Paul Ryan is sort of the linchpin of all this, right? What's going to happen to Paul Ryan? And uh, is he going to be able to be elected leader again, will he make deals or will he just want to get set up for 2018 and maybe 2020 himself? Well, let me explore that with you because I've been wondering uh, at what point does Paul Ryan say, you know what, if I want to be president of the United States, this is a crazy job for me to take, (laughs) particularly because it seems fairly obvious that the, the, the only uh, or in in the main, the the people who are vulnerable on his side in this election, and he'll probably lose ten yeah, to fifteen yeah, yeah. seats, are more moderate Republicans right. who his, are his natural allies. His conservative caucus becomes more conservative, right? Right. So you know, you have a couple of questions. One, does he even want the job anymore? I mean, if he doesn't want it, I don't know who wants it. His, his the big advantage from in that is that no one else really wants it or probably couldn't get the support for it. 
So he's got to get through an election among Republicans after the election. So they'll all gather a couple weeks after uh, November 8th in Washington. They'll pick their candidate for speaker, right? And that's kind of easy because he that's a majority vote of Republicans, right? But in then when the new Congress convenes on January 3rd, he's got to get elected by 218 people on the floor of the House. Does he have those votes or are there 20 Republicans who won't vote for him and then deny him? So, you know, how that all plays out is is going to tell a lot of the story because then going forward, does he try to, and he's going to have to make deals with Democrats just to do the basic functions of government, just to, the debt limit comes up in March. You know how that, how smoothly that always goes, right? <laughs> yes. uh, and then the spending bills. So just, he's going to have to get Democratic Republican coalitions. So then do the people on the right of him start complaining again, like they do about Boehner and drive him out. I mean, it's super complicated. And and all that's also... Well, if you were advising him, and I know you're not in the business of giving, but if you, do you agree with me that if he wants to be president, that it may be better not to be Speaker of the House? Yeah, and maybe that's what's going to work out for him. Maybe the best job he could have if he wanted to be president is minority leader of the House, because mm-hmm. then you just fight on everything and you look like the warrior against the Democrats. So... Maybe. So structurally, that seems impossible. He unfortunately he's stuck with a big office if he wants to stay. Yeah, the uh, yeah, I think that here's the other thing to watch in the House. Though you have this this segment of people who are already saying we're just going to investigate Hillary Clinton every day. Jason Chaffetz uh, yeah, has yeah. already announced. He said we've got two years of, yeah, uh, of material. It, it's just so. Let's say Hillary Clinton has a fairly good election day, right? She wins. She gets rolls up a nice electoral count, you know, wins the uh, Senate, and then faces, you know, just investigation after investigation. That is not a great climate for uh, political progress. I said in my story the other day that people who are hoping this whole election triggers a Washington reset should brace for disappointment, and I'm probably sticking with that. Part of it is going to be what happens with Trump and these True. people who have supported him. It seems the notion to me of Donald Trump going quietly into the night seems pretty remote. He likes the spotlight. He likes the attention. He feels like he's leader of a movement. And now he's teamed up with Steve Bannon from Breitbart, who detests Ryan yeah, by all yeah, accounts. Right. So uh, it seems as if they may set themselves up as a kind of rump group, right? Uh, going Government after both, both Clinton and Ryan, and 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 menacing those who support compromise between uh, between the Congress and the president. Right, and we've had we had that for a while, especially around 2010, 2012, more aimed at the Senate Republicans and McConnell, you know, and by these groups. Uh, that were attacking Republicans, and they were sort of Tea Party, but a little bit beyond that. And then when they were trying to knock off the Republicans in primaries, McConnell was able to fight back and sort of steadied that ship. But now I think you're going to have much more of that, which goes to kind of the Supreme Court. I know you wanted to talk about that, right? So already you're hearing among Republican groups and uh, conservatives, don't, don't approve any justices. Let's just leave that open. No no Hillary Clinton nominee should be approved. I mean, that's a whole new I step find, forward you know, in American like, government. I find it hard to understand how people who say they want fidelity to the Constitution could read the Constitution as 
uh, allowing for that scenario. Well, evidently the Constitution doesn't say you must approve, which is what they're pointing at. And but that to me is extraordinary. I think, and you know, Lindsey Graham last year, who's who's always been involved in these judicial fights and sort of a middle ground figure, said, "Okay, I'm going to go along with this on on Merrick Garland. You know, I don't like it. We can hold it up, but I'll tell you what: if Hillary Clinton sends someone over here who's qualified, I'm going to vote for them." Susan Collins, I'm sure, would be the same way if they have qualified candidates. They're not all Republicans are going to do that, but even if there's some who want to do that. It really is. Uh, it's something new. Now, if the Democrats have the Senate, you know, they can uh, eliminate the they ability. Can, they, you, you talked about the nuclear option right. that Harry Reid had a limited nuclear right. option. That he took, All judges and nominees except, except the, Supreme the Supreme Court. Court. And the reason for that was there were Democrats uh, who didn't think that was a good idea because they worry about Roe v. Wade, right? I think Barbara Boxer was in that camp, some of the other women. They said, well, if you do that, we might not be able to guard against our own uh, problems later on. That might not be a good move. But I think if there was a you know, concerted attempt to stonewall uh, Supreme Court nominees indefinitely, that the Democrats would obviously uh, eliminate that. And they do it in a in a procedural way that's not you know, according to the official Senate rule book, but it, it, it does apply. And how, what would the reaction to that be with that? These things have, have uh, created a lot of ill will, the yeah. back and forth over yeah. the nuclear option. Well, and it's part the of filibuster the- is something the Senate, you know, values and relishes. Uh, so this is a, this is a big kind cult- of strike big at the main engine. cultural change, right. Yeah. So you'd have, I mean, there was a lot of blowback after the last time, although the Republicans didn't change it back when they got into the into the majority. But uh, and, but it was part of the reason that the presidents had trouble in the last year getting judges approved, right? Although it's always somewhat like this. But I think— uh, Because the Republicans have held them up. Right, because they're like, you know what? You basically packed the D.C. Court of Appeals by eliminating— our ability to require a supermajority on those judges. So we're not going to help you with other judges. Publicly, I think the Democrats probably wouldn't have a very tough time selling this. If the Republicans were. But let me ask you a question. What about the notion that sometime between now and January 20th, either before the new Senate takes (laughs) place. This uh, is my favorite scenario, by the the, way. Either before the new Senate uh, uh, takes uh, hold or after on January 7th, uh, the Senate confirms Merrick Garland. Yeah, I mean, this is the big parlor game in Washington right now. How do you get, does Garland get approved? I don't think he gets approved in the lame duck. Mitch McConnell has made it extremely clear that he is not going to have his fingerprints on confirmation of a third Barack Obama appointment to the Supreme Court. What what about after the Senate? But but if the Democrats take the majority, could you do it in that window, right? Right. Uh, it's possible. It would be it be kind of tricky. Uh, get way in the Senate weeds. There has to be an organizing resolution that passes that lets the Senate uh, committees meet and things like that. I don't think it's inconceivable. In that way, the Republicans wouldn't be pushing him through. Eric Erickson, who you know is yeah. a voice on the right, has said on this podcast that he thought that uh, they should confirm. Uh, Garland. Garland, if they if Hillary Clinton is elected uh, president. And others, uh, Hugh Hewitt has, has said the same thing, and he's been very active on the right on this. Uh, 
on this issue. Aren't there a f- fair number of Republicans who might say, yeah, let's, we're not going to do better than this guy? So Yeah, I do. I think that. I do think that Mitch McConnell really doesn't want the Republicans to be in charge when that happens, because he's looking at 2018, and if he's got Republicans who are perceived as opening the court to this third Obama nominee. Uh, but Jeff Flake has been uh, out there on this. I will say on McConnell on Garland, you know, one of the knocks on Garland, I'm, the details of it are a little fuzzy. I don't think he's as anti-gun, Second Amendment, but there was a decision. And uh, to McConnell, that is disqualifying. But but I do think you're going to see a lot of pressure in this direction, but what they can really do with it, I don't know. Wouldn't it be better for Hillary Clinton to have I think them so. get, the, get this off the books so right. that she doesn't have a Supreme Court fight in the first hundred right. days of her administration. No, I said people people have asked me what I've raised this, you know, this window, the intercession, you know, the, the window that between the 3rd and the 20th. They said, well, wouldn't uh, Hillary Clinton not want that so she could get her own nominee? I said, well, you know, it's a lot of political capital she won't have to use right then. And I don't know if that's what you want to be your immediate fight. I know from the White House, and you probably know this better than I do, that they probably will renominate him. Uh, they would like to see this through. And I know Obama would like to get a third judge on there, right? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a pretty unique situation. So there's a lot going on here. But if you also have Republicans saying no nominee whatsoever, I don't know where. Sticking on the lame duck, uh, we had John Kerry the other day, uh, and uh, Kerry said if the votes were there to pass it, uh, he would like to see uh, the Senate move on the TPP uh, before uh, the end of the year. Uh, how do you rate the odds of that? Both presidential candidates now, even though Hillary Clinton had once supported, they, right. they, they, they both now say they're opposed to it. There was a, a moment a couple of weeks ago where I thought it might have a chance. Max Baucus, the ambassador to China, was up on the Hill. Former was, senator, right, long-time of, senator. Of, and of chairman, chairman of the, of the finance, finance Committee. Which, did, which does these. And it, it, there looked like there was an opening, but I'm less optimistic now. Everybody just seems to have taken the position, we can't do this. Even though Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, Harry, maybe not Harry Reid as much, who's actually doesn't not a big trade guy, right? Uh, but people who want this Pelosi, to go through. Well, I don't know about it, her. No, I mean she, she's she, had some issues with it too. But there's people who think this needs to be done, not just for economic reasons, but national security reasons. This is a national security trade deal in some ways, and when you keep and the chamber wants it done, and the business roundtable wants it done, and you know they're, they they. I, I don't see the momentum there for it right but, now. But those who are suspicious of Hillary Clinton on the left will be looking to her to stand up and force, force, forcefully stop uh, any movement. Right, so that's why it's smart to do it in the lame duck. That's another thing you could take off of her plate, and she wouldn't have to do whatever she's going to do with I guess that. the question is whether it would be sort of, if she'd be held to account anyway, because the theory would be if she said no, that Democrats wouldn't move forward. Well, but... I don't think she would be in the White House then. <laughs> That's true. No, no. Look, I, I think there's, uh, I think there's a, a logic, uh, a logic to that. What about after she takes office? Um, the, there's, if, there's been talk. If, there's. Uh, well, go ahead. No, no. If she takes office, no. You go ahead. I'm just saying. But I'm I mean, let's assume. No, no. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to be presumptuous <laughs> about it. But I'm, I'm working the odds here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a whole other scenario that we could spend time yeah. on, which is what happens if Trump takes office, but. 
That's a, an alternative. No idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't think any of us quite know what that would be look like. Look like because he's at war with uh, the very party leaders of his own party, with. who he'd have to who he'd have to deal with. We should talk about that a little bit. Ryan has been walking this very difficult line yeah. on Trump, where he denounces him for making racist remarks, for making sexist remarks, but. Uh, saying, but I'll, I, I still su- support yeah. him. He's just trying. It's I, I think you, when you try and have it both ways, in some ways, you, you don't have it anyway, right? I think, you know, his own, this is what stirred up some of this anger against him from the right in his caucus. Like, wait, wait, that's our nominee. I think it's really been a difficult situation for Ryan. He's trying to maintain his own viability for the future. And it's it's blown up on him a little bit. I mean, he might have wanted to watch Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell has basically gone underground on the presidential race for the past uh, month or so since leaving uh, Congress. He won't. I saw some stories. He won't even answer questions at events about it. He just he's just staying silent. Mitch McConnell is really interested in the Supreme Court, right? He's the he's the champion of anti-campaign finance reform. Right. So he doesn't want Citizen United. Exactly. Reversed. So this to Mitch McConnell, I've always said. To him, this election is totally about the Supreme Court, and that's the last bulwark they have. And he, you know, he wants to. He wants to maintain the Senate. Yeah, right. Wants to maintain the Senate. Uh, You see the problem that Republicans were in. You said Jason Chavis, who we mentioned before, (laughs) who had made a very strong, passionate statement after the tape came out, that Access Hollywood tape about he has a 15-year-old daughter, he can't support Trump, and now he's kind of reversed that. some of these Republicans probably were watching Joe Heck in Nevada, who yeah. made a similar statement. I think he's actually, Joe Heck has probably been the guy who's been most hurt by this. He's running for the U.S. Senate. Right. He took the same position that Chavitz did after the tape came out. And uh, and a lot of Trump supporters are hopping mad about that right. in Nevada. So, if you, if, so the people who are against Trump don't like what he's done because it looks political. And the people who are for Trump think he's a traitor. Uh, I think it's actually if Catherine Cortez Masto wins out there, it's probably going to be because of that. I think this is reflects what I've been talking about. For this few, is for the Harry Reid seat, right. we should point out. Yeah, in Nevada, which is, could potentially be— It's the one seat that Republicans had hope have for. —have a chance for, and if they can get that, that makes it harder for the Democrats by quite a bit. But, you know, there's been this part of the Republican Party that I've been watching over the past few years— that has a kind of a basic misread of their own constituents, right? There are parts of the party who just aren't understanding, you know, who their constituents are in some ways. So these people are really angry. They're angry at them. My theory on this, and this is really just sort of theoretical, is, you know, the Republicans— As since, most theories are. Yes, yeah, since Obama's been in, in there. Yeah, I was going to say a different word for it, but I, I decided <laughs> not to— uh, you know, have been making all these promises. We're going to repeal Obamacare. We're going to hold the line on the president. We're going to keep him from doing these executive orders. And it, and they, to the Republican voter out there in a lot of these places, they haven't delivered. Right. And they're mad. In the past, it used to be enough to say you were going to do these things. Do you, you see what I'm saying on that? And now yes. they wanted results, right? It used to be, hey, we're going to do this. but then Yes, re- and the, it's radicalized right, the base. Has. We'll be right back with uh, Carl Hulse of the New York Times. Do you feel, Carl, that, um, and you probably, I know you talked to the leadership on both sides, uh, uh, off the record as well as on, 
Do you think there is any sense that they uh, tampered with primal forces that are now overwhelming them? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's true. I think that they're there, but it's been building, right? And I think that they were all surprised by Trump. They didn't quite know how to deal with it. They got out of the way, and uh, now they're paying a, a bit of the price, right? And that that always happens when you when you grab onto something as a force, right? That can make change and have a big impact, there's a chance that it can get out of control. I think Ryan, you know, here he started out that day, Paul Ryan, not endorsing Trump, right? That was a shocking moment to us. I was in the newsroom watching it on. When he told Jake Tapper. Right. That that was a shock. We all just sort of expected he was going to go along there. Uh, And, you know, he reversed himself, but there's been others who haven't. And I think that they're the ones right now who are you know, Jeff Flake, uh, you know, feeling pretty good about the position they've, they've taken. And you had these members who were backing and forthing after the uh, uh, tape, the video, and, you know, it just it doesn't look good. But they were reacting to this public outcry at home, right? What do you mean you're not going to uh, support Trump? Well, here comes a primary. Republicans are mainly worried about being primaried these days. They're yes. not worried about being defeated in general elections. Speaking of primaries— uh, it feels as if the next Republican presidential race will begin uh, within at, minutes of the election. Yes, <laughs> yeah. How is that going to impact on the on the scene in Washington over the next? Four yeah, years? I mean, you saw Ted Cruz already. He was one of the ones most vocal about. Well, we can just leave the Supreme Court seats open. Uh, so he's already running. I, Paul Ryan, you know, he doesn't. He says, well, maybe he's not interested. Whatever, but obviously. Uh, he is someone who uh, is con- is considered one of their top people. But Mike Pence is now a wild card. In yeah, this, talk about know. Pence and Kane, by the way. You know both these guys. Yeah, yeah. Mike Pence, them. I covered quite a bit in the in the House. He's <clears throat> really a conservative guy, really conservative. But he's he's a you know he's a deep conservative. But his favorite line is always, "Well, I may be conservative, but I'm not angry about it." So he's you know that. Uh, hell fellow well met sort of attitude that he takes but it's interesting to watch him try and interpret trump and oftentimes he finds he finds readings in trump that no one else can see that make them sound more aligned with traditional conservative which is where he is right but i think you know he's done pretty well in this campaign, uh, you know, he had a good debate mm-hmm. against Tim Kaine. And he may have lost the governor's race right. in Indiana. It looks like his lieutenant governor is going to lose the governor's yeah. race in Indiana. Yeah, it's, it was, it's, it was to me, I thought at the time, wow, he's really going to give up running for governor. And he must have known better than we did, right? But the, uh, I think he'll be formidable. There's, you know, there's certainly other people in the Senate who maybe didn't take a run at it this time, but. So how does that impact the co- sort of well, governance yeah. in, the, in, 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 in the particularly on the congressional end? Yeah, I mean, so everything is is freighted with these presidential uh, aspirations. But you know, in governing, you can also use that as leverage, right? You they also want to do things, right? They want to get something accomplished. They might have certain things that they want to do, and you go. So if you're Chuck Schumer, or whatever you're there, well, you know, this is going to help you here. Mm-hmm. Or, or what about this? Schumer and Ryan have a decent uh, relationship. Uh, they've talked immigration. Uh, you think that can happen, immigration reform? You know, at some point it has to. 
Now, I don't know when that is. Look, if, the, if you were rational and you were a Republican, you'd want to take that off your plate before well, the next what, election. But, What's going to kill Trump if he doesn't win here is, you know, you look at Florida right now. The early vote in Florida is robust, and it's particularly robust among Hispanic voters. And there's very little suspicion that they're coming out to vote for Donald Trump. Right. And the, the influx of Puerto Rican voters mm-hmm. there who are much more Democratic. So... My story after the last election, 2012, my story on the front page of the New York Times was Republicans to going to explore what they need to do to fix this. They've lost the popular vote in six out of the last seven elections. They're going to have this big uh, navel-gazing session. And Which figure they out did. What, right. And what did that find? It found that you need to quit in alienating Hispanics. And, and women and, y- right. and younger voters. Right. And then what happened? Yeah. I don't <laughs> so, think the project's going well. Uh, so you uh, see that sometimes the uh, doing the best thing that – strategically from a political standpoint, maybe a tough sell to your Well, it seems like they're, they're, they're sort of prisoner of a, po- a portion of their base. Yeah, and it's like the House. You know, the, the House Republicans are a prisoner of a segment of their, of their base that represents that base. So immigration reform is going to be difficult to do. What about uh, infrastructure? I think that's the, that's the main, been that's the about. one thing that everybody can kind of agree on. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Earmarks, you know, might not be specific line item things, but this is a way to, you know, get money into these communities. Everybody can vote for it. I think if you look down the road, that's one thing that can actually get done. I think tax reform is not totally out of the realm. I mean, Schumer's a finance committee guy. Ryan knows taxes. And they could be connected because that could be a means of financing the other, the you're going to have program. to get the money from somewhere. You know, the overseas tax situation, which that's that's my limit of the Corporate, knowledge. Overseas tax. Yeah, right. Well, you've got you've got guys over <laughs> yeah. there at the New York Times who write about that but stuff. But that I think that everyone uh, agrees that needs to be fixed. So maybe tax reform, but you know it's it's going to be a tough situation. Actually, the health care law something has to be done. In a normal circumstance, they would be able to make some fixes to that. They, they're not able to do that. So you don't paint a really uh, rosy scenario. Yeah, I know. I am kind of Debbie Downer on on some of this stuff. I don't see it. You know, always chance for a miracle next two years, right? Because then the Dem- the Senate Republicans have probably a, flips to the Republicans. They have a huge advantage in the seats up. Uh, you know, I hate to say that we're still stuck here, but I mean, all signs point to that. Hopefully, I'll well, be wrong. And beyond that, you have. Then a re-election scenario, presumably, if it's if if it's Hillary or if it's not, but the president's going to be running for re-election. Or an impeachment scenario. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, let, let me. Um, I can't let you go without talking a little Cubs. Go Cubs. Go. Not just because you're sitting there with that hat, but because sitting in the city of Chicago right now. Uh, we are infused with cub fever. It may be that by the time people hear this uh, podcast that they will have uh, a sense of where this this has all gone. But but I want to know how you came to be wearing that hat. And, and you should tell people what's written under so, the bill. Uh, not only am I wearing an authentic Cubs hat, but it's signed by Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub, by himself. Uh, you know, so growing up in... In northern Illinois, uh, we got WGN. That was the beginning of cable, you know, and all the old 
WGN shows, Frazier Thomas right. and the news. Those were the things we watched. So the Cubs were on all the time. That was their programming. I had a, an aunt, a maiden aunt, and, you know, lived a block away from me, had the Cubs on constantly. You know, she would sit in front of the TV, which I'm sure was like this black and Watching white Jack TV. Jack Brickhouse. Yeah, and listen to Jack Brickhouse with her TV tray, you know, eating. And so if you're in that house, you're watching the Cubs. I was a huge baseball fan as a kid. And, uh, you know, I, I not to say I didn't like the White Sox. So, you know, I like the, you know, Pete Ward and Jack Nicholson. Remember the mm-hmm. strikeout king? They were uh, Moose Scour and those were guys. But and I grabbed Gary it. Nicholson? Yeah. Gary? No, no, no what, not Jack. But yeah. we'll, we'll, the guy, we'll get the an answer. The guy who, Jack? Pete, Pete Nicholson, maybe? Anyway, he was a big strikeout guy. <laughs> Uh, sort of the day we'll, we'll Google this after, but the so and then the first ball game one of the neighbors took me to probably I think we took the train up was to go to Wrigley Field and then you know that was just it I've always been a huge Cubs fan when I was in Kankakee I had a pass uh, probably journalistically questionable that let me get in for paying the tax right so I could go in and sit in the open grandstand and. You know, Where there were probably many available seats. Yes, there were quite a few. In fact, you yeah. know, Wrigley Field, to me, if a game comes on TV, I can tell if it's at Wrigley from the sound because the grandstand there has, a, has its own sound, right, with the not just the organ, but just the sound of the people. But, you know, so to come what, here on this great historic day of the first World right, Series. Yeah, the first day, first World Series game tonight you know, that's the been played in Wrigley Field since 45. 1945. And, you know, the city's electric. and But I do think that there's a wistfulness about it, too, for us longtime Cubs fans, because a lot of the people who turned us on to the game or took us to our first games, uh, you know, they're not around. or guys I went to the games with. But, you know, so we have to live it all for him. And, uh, you know, it's just a great thing. I, can I tell you an Ernie Banks story when he signed this, by the way? Yes. So I, I, he had also signed a a ball for me when I was a kid, and we were talking. And, you know, he was a, a little older at the time. And I, Where was this? Was it this, on the Hill? This was actually in uh, Dick Durbin's office. Uh, I think, or maybe Senator Reed's. Durbin. One of the two, but... Yeah. You know, I'm sure Durbin arranged it because of the Illinois thing. So I said, I go, he goes, This is how he, uh, how he ensures favorable coverage. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, I said to Ernie, I go, well, it must have been something. He goes, yeah, it was the greatest. We played ball all day and chased women all night. And I, <laughs> and I go, well, that's what you meant. Let's play too. You know, I, one of the great, great benefits of working for the president was people would pass through, including great baseball players sure. of the past. So I have, you know, balls signed by Sandy Koufax and Ernie Banks, Willie Mays. Uh, and Ernie came into my office at the White House and he saw a ball signed by Willie Mays. He said, Willie Mays, he said, man, he was great. He says, and I, he said, um, he said, when, when uh, I said, well, Ernie, you know, people say this, talk about you the same way. He said, I wasn't even in his class. He wow, said, that's he, something, he, isn't said, it? he said, when Willie, st- when Willie, Stepped on a field. We all watched because we knew something was going to happen. Something exciting was going to happen. And I thought, what a cool guy that he yeah. was willing to acknowledge yeah, that. That's there were big a, egos in two sports. Two MVP awards for yeah. Ernie. You now, know. Ernie was no, uh, no mean player. You know, the best player, certainly an infield player at that time. You know, I was here for the 84 playoffs, which were actually the first post season Cubs appearance since that was uh, the uh, where Leon Durham uh, right well that was in San Diego but it was so much fun uh it was so great so the Cubs 
Jimmy Buffett sang the national anthem. Steve Goodman, the great songwriter and Cubs fan who died right before that. Whose anth- anthem, right. Go Cubs that, Go, is what to Cubs me fans is one sing of the at the end of every winning game. That Steve Goodman didn't get to see that. I think his wife... Although, what a what a beautiful yeah, tribute to yeah, him that he has become song, the guy yeah. who everybody sings with at the end of these winning games. I think games. his wife might have thrown out the first pitch. Oh, is that right? That game. Bob Dernier let off with a He was home. 32 or something when he died yeah, of leukemia. It was a terrible loss, yeah. wrote the city of New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, but Bob Dernier... Yeah. Let off with a home run. Sutcliffe hit a home run. It was thirteen. I think the score was thirteen to nothing. And then they and, had to go west. Yeah, and it was just so depressing. Yeah, yeah. So what does it mean to you personally? Yeah, it's just great. I mean, you said you're you're taking a buddy who yeah, you grew no, up I'm, with. I'm taking one of my uh, childhood friends who is the biggest Cubs fan I know. His life is the Cubs. He goes constantly. And I, as I'd said, if I could only get one ticket, I was going to give it to him. This guy had to go. Uh, so I'm, we're going tonight, and it, it is weird. It was I watched the game on TV the other night, and it was just like, wow, it actually finally happened. You know, we had been up against that wall so many times, yeah, and it's incredible. it's almost hard to believe sometimes when you look at it. Being in that stadium when they clinched was an incredibly emotional thing, and uh, you know there were tears in people's. Oh, I saw eyes. on this TV. Was, I was, there were tears in mine. And I only, I've only been in Chicago for 44 years. Yeah. I mean, I was a Mets fan in 69, I hate to say. Oh, my God. When they, I, oh, uh, when they, really, they took you out. You I should know, hate to say that. No, listen, but I'm, you, this is, I'm fully let, transparent here. Did you at let the, the black cat loose? Because that's still the craziest <laughs> I had nothing thing I've to ever do, seen. <laughs> I had nothing to do with the cat. But I will say this. <clears throat> when I was at spring training, I was working on a piece that I did for The New Yorker about the, the Cubs. And I was talking to fans. And I ran into a, a 71-year-old guy from the suburbs who, uh, who was a lifelong Cubs fan. And he said, uh, my daughter promises me that if we, if we go to the World Series, we're going. We're going to get tickets. We're going to go. Whatever it costs, we're going to go. He was so excited. And then all of a sudden, he, his mood changed. And he, he start, it's as if he had thought of something. And he said, but... But if they win it, he says, what do I have to live for? Well, you know, I was talking to someone at Major League Baseball about this because they said, well, those lovable loser days are going to be over. And I'm feeling a little bit of that, right? You're like, well, where does this leave us? Because they have such a great young core of that team. You know, after Boston broke through, they went on to win again. And they're less lovable. Yeah. Well, and that's that's the thing. You know, what happens to the Cubs? I think we've experienced so many years of lovability that fear would be okay. If people (laughs) feared and loathed us, that'd be okay because we're good every year. I think that's probably what's going to happen, and that's what this— From uh, your mouth to God's ears. That's what the guy at the baseball predicted. He goes, oh, don't worry. Everybody's going to hate you soon. Well, good luck to them and us. And I I so appreciate you being at the Institute of Politics. Great, David. Thank you. Okay, Carl Holtz, thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. 